This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to interview some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Here, I learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. I'm going to make a man about here. Coming around good. I've covered a lot of water. There's got to be one here somewhere. I don't... Oh, there he is. Woo! It's a runner, too. Oh, yeah. All right, get him on the reel now. Calm down. Stay calm. Let him run. Okay, now let's see what he's going to do. All right, he's going to stop for a minute. I've got a rock I've got to get around here. Check that drag setting. It's tight. Each one of these things is different. You never, never know. you got to be ready to do any, anything. Keep the pressure on him. Oh, look at that fish. Lonnie Waller is a man who needs little introduction in the steelhead world. Respected author, angler, and traveler, he is probably best recognized by a set of steelhead videos that he released in the 1980s, videos that were before their time. Lonnie has often been referred to as legendary or famed, but while he is the first to admit that he is proud of his accomplishments, he is just as quick to announce his imperfections. Personally, Lonnie's love for the sport captured my attention when I was a young angler, and he has since become a friend and mentor with a compassionate ear and easing wisdom. In this episode, we talk about his introduction to the sport, the specifics behind his famed videos, steelhead fishing, human nature, and the plane crash that nearly ended it all. I started fishing when I was just a... I was six years old and my dad took me catfishing in Missouri right after the war 19 uh, god I guess 45 or 46 he took me catfishing I caught my first fish was just 
little catfish about this big. So we were sitting on the, on the creek where I caught this catfish and I saw that catfish and it was the most incredible thing I think I'd, I'd ever seen. And I told my dad that I, I wanted to keep it. I didn't want to let it go. So he said, well, okay. So we put it in, in the minnow bucket, the bait bucket, so that I had this little catfish swimming around in circles in this galvanized bait bucket. So all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came this horrendous storm, and we had to pack up and leave. In our haste to leave the fishing hole, we left my catfish behind in an old bucket, a minnow bucket, and we got halfway back to the house, and I realized that I didn't have my catfish with me. So I threw a tantrum, started screaming and yelling and hopping up and down. We have to go back and get the catfish. So by this time, the river, the creek was flooding and the catfish was in this bucket about ready to be swept into oblivion. And my dad got it, <coughs> excuse me, took the catfish bucket, put it in the car and went home with it. Right. So I put it at the foot of my bed. And I'd feed it stuff, breadcrumbs and bologna sandwich, peanut butter. and you know. So it lasted. On, a, on the diet I was feeding that catfish, it was peanut butter and breadcrumbs and sometimes cereal. The thing died. Yeah. Yeah, so I <laughs> lost my little catfish, buddy. And my mother said, well, she said, I'll tell you what. She said, it'll be okay if you take the little catfish out of the bucket and you bury it and it'll go to catfish heaven. Did you do that? So I did. I took it out of the bucket and I buried it. We had a little ceremony. The catfish went to catfish heaven and I was satisfied with that. So it all, my first experience wasn't with catch and release, but it, it, I showed a real affection for, for the, for the natural world, even though I was a little kid. And, uh, I, I stayed that way. I mean, we had the natural world I found something there, even as just as a little kid. And, uh, so I, that was kind of like a starting point. And I went catfishing a lot when I was in Missouri and crappie and all those kind of stuff. And that's where I learned about the connection of a fishing line and a wild creature out there. And it was like a conduit to another world, you know, fishing. It was a way that I could connect and belong and participate with nature. And I just loved that. And it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And pretty soon I was catfishing all the time. And then we moved out to California. And all of a sudden, I saw mountains and clear water rivers and a fish called rainbow trout. And I was never the same. I was hooked, you know. So I fished with lures and bait for years and stayed with it and just loved it. And then when I was in high school, I discovered this endeavor called fly fishing. And I didn't know anything about it. And we were we were poor. I didn't have any money for tackle or anything. So I used to make my own fly lines out of big, fat, <laughs> braided, fishing lines. So I would get the length of this big fat fishing line and I'd melt some paraffin. My mom would melt paraffin and I'd take the 
big fat braided fishing line. I'd dunk it down into the bucket of wax and I'd lift it up and smooth it all out. And pretty soon I had this thing that looked like the fly lines I'd seen in sporting goods magazines. <laughs> but I didn't know how to cast it, you know. So I started reading the sporting magazines that my dad subscribed to. My dad was a hunter and not a fisherman. So we, he subscribed to Field and Stream and Sports of Field. And all of a sudden I saw these guys, women too, but mostly men in those days, fishing with these things made out of fur and feathers and stuff. And I was dazzled by that. You know, I was just completely taken with it. So I started fly casting then when I was in uh, early high school. And my heroes then were guys like Lee Wolf and Joe Brooks were two my two two biggest heroes, and I read everything I could get, and pretty soon I started developing a perspective about all this, you know, what it is, what it isn't, and how you can belong to that. So I just got more and more engrossed with it, and great books were being written by guys like Wolf and Brooks and, and other people. And I, and I read all that, and I was fascinated with it, and I started gathering information and pretty soon I had this picture of myself being a fly caster you know and uh but I was afraid that I could never be like the guys in the magazines because they had lots of money and they were all dressed up and some of them even wore a red bandana around their neck and I thought it was all very glamorous but it was beyond my reach as a, the son of a welder so I went through high school fishing local trout stuff and started fishing for steelhead in 1956. Where? In California? In California. And I just went bonkers. I caught my first steelhead on salmon eggs and when I wound it into the bank, it was this long and it was the biggest trout I'd ever seen. And I was gone. So I just kept reading and learning all I could about how the big guys did this kind of stuff, you know. And then when it came time to go to college, I didn't care anything about the credentials of the school. I wanted a, I wanted a school that was close to really good fishing. So I chose this little podunk state college called Chico State, and I would go fishing all the time. It was close to the mountains, and we even had a tributary to the Sacramento River running through campus. So one day I was walking to class and I saw the Chinook salmon nosing up this little bitty creek. It wasn't more than eight or nine feet long. And I thought, well, God, I wonder if I could catch it with a fly. So I would go in the afternoons on campus and I'd fish underneath this little bridge crossing the campus. And it was great because all the co-eds could walk by and when no one was looking, I'd try to look up their dresses. Yeah. <laughs> this is really a great fishing spot here. Look, look what I've got. So, you know, I, then I started fly fishing for steelhead and, and in my senior year in college, my dad bought a, uh, what's called a mining claim up on the Klamath River. You could get 30 acres as a mining claim. All you'd have to do is find a little gold there and you could stake a claim and get 30 acres. You could keep it for, I think it was a 30 year like a lease. So I'd go up to the Klamath River to visit our um, mining claim, and I fished for steelhead 
sometimes with flies, but mostly with lures, and that the fever just kept growing. I mean, I wanted more of it and more of it and more of it. You know, and I started working and I could afford tackle and stuff. So by the time I got it, time I was in graduate school, I was already getting really pretty experienced with it all. And I began to pay attention to the traditions and the tackle and all that stuff. And it just kept growing. Kept growing and kept growing. And I, when I got out of graduate school, I had a year of graduate school, I was going to get a master's degree. And I woke up in the morning, I said, I don't want to, I don't want to go to school no more. I've been going to school for, I don't know, 20 years or something. And what were you going to school for? I was studying psychology, a lot of psychology, a lot of history, and uh, social sciences. And uh, I didn't go to school, college to learn about how to get a better job. I, what I liked about college is that showed me other ways of living, other people's lives that I had never met before. So anyway, I left graduate school and went, took a year off and went all over the world. I went down into Central America, Ecuador. I had a friend who was in the Peace Corps down in the jungles of Ecuador. And still wandering around. I still didn't, I loved to fish, but I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I just liked to fish. So in 1977, a fraternity brother of mine came up with a proposal about opening a fly fishing shop in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And we formed a partnership with two very well-known, very famous fly fishing experts. One was Andre Puyans, who was from Cuba. I don't know if you've ever heard of Andre Puyans or not. He had a great fly shop, and it was like Steelhead Central. So I ran that shop for a while, for about two years, and all of a sudden we decided to go into the travel business. So I would sell my clients these fly fishing trips to Alaska. So I'd take maybe three, four, five people up to Alaska, and all of a sudden I saw what fly fishing could really be for trout and salmon, how incredible it could be in certain parts of the world. And that just kept growing and growing. And I started going to trade shows and started promoting myself and uh, developed a really a very, very good slideshow on, on steelhead. I mean, I t- took lots of pictures. I had a camera. I wouldn't go to the bathroom without a camera and my waiting staff. You know, so I was, you never know. There might be one in the toilet bowl. <laughs> <laughs> so... I had this slideshow at this trade show, and I had the, they gave me the worst speaking hour of the entire five-week show. I was going to give my slideshow at five o'clock on Sunday afternoon, the very end of the show. Yeah, so who wants to, so I remember going into the theater where I was to give the slideshow, and I went through the back curtains, and I pulled the curtains back, and I looked out at the audience, and there were five people there. Oh, no. I thought, son of a gun, I really don't want to go out here and spill my guts for just five people. There's no, what's the gain in that? And then the little bird sitting on this shoulder said, wait a minute now. Wait a minute. He said, these five people cared enough to come out the last hour of a five-day show to listen to what you have to say about fly fishing for steelhead. So go out there 
and give them the best show you ever have given anyone. So I gave this really nice slide presentation on fly fishing for steelhead, and when it was all over, the guy, five guys all got up in unison and walked up to me, and they were all executives and the CEO of Scientific Anglers. No way. Yeah. And they said, well, they said it was a great, great slideshow, and we're coming out with a series of fly fishing videos that we think will change the sport forever. Would you be interested in a screen test to see if you could, how you are in front of a camera? So we went up to the Sandy River in Oregon, and they put me in this pool that's three inches deep, and they say, okay, start casting. Okay, so I start casting. It's all single-handed rods then. And the guy said, uh, okay, start casting. Cast again. So I made, I don't know, 30, 40 casts, and all of a sudden, someone screams out, you've got him, he's on. He's on, and I didn't shit within three inches of water, so... I decided that what I had on the end of my line was an imaginary 45-pound steelhead, so I was playing. I'm doing all this. The cameras are rolling, and everybody's just watching the screaming lunatic out there hopping up and down over an imaginary 45-pound fish in three inches of water. And they said, well, after I landed the fish and it was all over, the filmmaker who had done major Hollywood stuff was really good. He said, well, he said, you look pretty good out there. He said, uh... I think we'll, I think we got you. So, what you got to do now, they said, is write everything you know about fly fishing for steelhead so we can come up with a 45-minute film. So, for the next five months, I sat down and started writing the, the script, and I sent it to 3M. They said, it's fabulous, but we want more. We're going to do three films on steelhead. You got two more film scripts in you? I said, okay, I'll just keep writing. So anyway, we ended up with three films, those three, the DVD series. We filmed them on the Dean River, segments on the Dean River, on some on the Deschutes, and then we filmed a lot of it up on the Babine River in British Columbia. And had you been to any of these rivers before? Yeah, I'd been to the, to, I'd been, uh, to the Babine before, but I hadn't, that was what I was focusing all my attention in the trophy steelhead of Canada. So um, we ended up then with 300 pages of script. And they said, you got to memorize all of this. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know I'm a genius. <laughs> I know that I know I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you guys. But I, I can't, <laughs> I will never in my wildest dreams, stone drunk, I couldn't memorize 300 pages of script. So if we make these three movies. I want cue cards this big so I can read what I'm supposed to be saying. So they said, okay. So we got all the cue cards up. So you really did actually have cue cards while you were out there? Yeah. <laughs> they put them underneath the camera. So I'm looking into the camera, but I'm really reading. And now we're doing what we call the grease line technique, and you do this and you do that. I'm all reading this from the cue card. So I'd make, you know, five minutes of a fishing sequence, and they'd have to change cue cards. So they'd cut they get out the new cue cards and put them up. So we did that for, God, we filmed for seven weeks, four or five weeks, on the Deschutes, the Babby, and other places. And they had it in a can. And I had no idea what to expect out of this. So 
I ran across Doug Swisher one day at a trade show. He'd been, he'd done films for scientific angles on trout. And I said, Doug, I don't know what to do about this deal. I've been working my butt off in this deal and they don't even want to pay me any royalties for this. So what can I, I'm just going to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, keep so, going. And if it's, if it's, yeah, I tend to ramble on. Okay. So you no, tell me when to I'm stop. fascinated and I tend to be, I'm a rambler. Blunt. Okay. <laughs> so if there's anything that's inappropriate, just tell me to piss. I off. doubt it. So what were you getting, what were you getting out of it? Were you they, getting paid? Yeah. They paid me $6,000 for each film. So I was $18,000. Right. And was so that, that a big deal back then? That was a big deal back then to right. me. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, so Swisher told me, he said, don't worry about royalties. Take the 16 grand. They're going to send these things all over the world. You're going to be a hero. You're going to be Mr. Steelhead. Take the 16 grand and don't worry about it because your phone's getting ready to ring off the hook as soon as these are released. And by God, he was right. Those films went all over the U.S. They went to Europe. They went to Japan. And all of a sudden, I was this... I don't know. People call it all kinds of things. I, you know, I had this visibility, you know, worldwide. And my phone did start ringing off overnight. the hook overnight, almost three days after they came out. People wanting to know not only how they can learn from me, but where can they go to have the kind of fishing they saw in the films. Ah, bingo, okay. bingo, bingo. So I also then had this little embryonic kind of, fishing travel going. Mm -hmm. Now I had clients from all over the U.S. calling me up, wanting to know everything from where could they get the kind of rod I was using to where is that river. So I plugged all that stuff into my business plan, which included travel. And it just kept growing and growing. And uh, then I went up to uh, British Columbia and met the family called the Wickwire family who pioneered a a steelhead camp on the Babine River, and they needed someone to help them promote and market the camp mm -hmm. because their marketing plan was all screwed up. They were trying to sell this river to bait and lure fishermen from Portland and Seattle. And, and I said, How old were you at this time? Uh, I was 38. Okay, so still pretty young. Still pretty young. So um, I went up, I met this family in this fabulous river that was just being fished by bait and lure guys. And I told the owners of the camp, I said, this river is a wonderful fly river and you're marketing this in the wrong way. I said, I've got a quite a fly fishing following now. If you give me control, absolute control, over all the bookings and the reservation systems, I'll have this camp full in three years. So they said, okay. And I did just that because I had all this momentum going to these movies and films that were being shown everywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, they were a tremendous success. Now the, the camp was full every week, and I would go up for two weeks, three weeks, and fish more BC steelhead. So that established me in a way I couldn't have dreamed of. But it also created a kind of a Frankensteinian monster because people see someone on film – and it gives them a legitimacy and a reality they may or may not deserve. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just seeing somebody in film gives them a credibility. That, so it, all of a sudden now I'm really well known. I'm getting famous. And um, the problem with it was is that 
this artificial persona. It wasn't artificial. I mean, I was real, but I mean, everybody makes mistakes. But when I, they were filming me and when I was doing all these, these films, if I made a bad cast, it ended up on the cutting floor. Right. If I spit when I wasn't supposed to spit, it wound up on the cutting floor. And if I said a naughty word, they cut that out too. So all of a sudden now I look like I'm perfect. Yeah. I never miss a cast. I always catch fish. And I had a hard time dealing with that, mm-hmm. you know, because I really, and they started saying, well, you know, the legendary, I mean, I've been called legendary for so many years, I don't even know what it means. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't legendary in terms of my fishing prowess, because a legend is somebody who always succeeds and never fails. But I had to deal with that. I had to incorporate that kind of image into my life and I had people coming from Japan who just, I'd get to go through an airport and somebody would see me at the airport and I'd have to wait and stand in line one time for 12 Japanese who were lined up wanting me to autograph their baseball caps. And that was hard for me to deal with, but what sustained me through it was my motives. And I, I wasn't in this for the wrong reasons. I was wrong, I was into it because I cared about it and I loved it. And it was connected to me in many, many different ways. And I also knew that the easiest rivers and watersheds to ruin are those no one knows about. Mm-hmm. See, so I used to get a lot of static about, well, you're promoting these rivers. You're just building up all this angling pressure, you know. And I said, that's the best thing that can happen because if, if enough people care about a river and they love it, it's going to be really hard for somebody to go in there and start clear-cutting and doing mine, mining and all this kind of stuff because people won't stand for that. So in some ways I became a guardian of it. I was fighting for, 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 for the environment and the publicity that I was giving the, the rivers, yes, it increased the pressure. You know, now instead of 50 people fishing on the Babine, there would be 300 maybe, but they were 300 people who cared. They showed up for the for the right reasons, and I'm still doing that. I mean, it's still worth it, and uh, we did we've done a lot in British Columbia to protect this, you know, and that wouldn't have happened without the publicity and the promotion. And yes, some of the rivers were a little more crowded, but they were the right people. They can't they can't care if they don't know about it. Right. So I understand where you're coming from. But one of the things that's really interesting to me that you said was. What did you call it? A Frank Frankenstein Frankensteinian monster, <laughs> or Frankensteinian? I think it's Stinian monster. Yeah. It's so funny because you know it, we had kind of touched on this earlier when when you and I were speaking out in the yard that in the world today with all the social media and all the cameras and everybody having a camera on their phone, no one's safe. And earlier I told you that my career, I'm sure, has a shelf life. And you said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I'm, I make mistakes and I'm sure it's only a matter of time before I do something and it's caught on camera or I make enough bad casts that people just totally discredit me. And people in my generation do get compared to the people in your generation who have these flawless images. Right. And so it's so interesting to hear that be something that would plague you. Um, when, you know, for me being on the opposite end of the spectrum, I would look at that and go, Oh my God, you lucky bastards. You know, you guys always had it, had it so easy because you were able to leave that stuff on the cutting floor. 
but I never thought about it in a way that it would, it would put you on such a high pedestal that you almost seemed to not even be human anymore. And that sets a standard that's really hard to live up to on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I had a conversation one time at a sports show in Seattle when a famous Hollywood actor, he was a character actor, but he was great. His name was Slim Pickens. (laughs) You heard of Slim Pickens? No. No. Okay, well, Slim Pickens, he was a cowboy, and they made a famous movie called Dr. Strangelove. And in this movie, Slim Pickens gets his rides on a hydrogen bomb with his cowboy hat waving around like this as the bomb falls to earth to blow up, you know. So Pickens walks into the booth one time and he told me about it. He said, you know, I asked him what it was like to be a Hollywood actor. He was big time in those days. And he said, well, he said it creates an artificial persona. He said, you know, and it, it, and he was right. You know, he was right. It does. And my, the medicine that I took, the immunity that I rested in, the refuge I took, was that I knew that my motives were honorable and I really cared about this and I could see its importance. So, despite some really weird incidents, I I made it through all that stuff because I knew I was there and I knew that it mattered and it would do more good than bad. But there were times when it got really weird, you know, People would come up to me and they say, well, one guy came up to me one time. I had taken him fishing for a week and I gave him all the best pools. I always fished behind him, you know, and I, I did everything. I took care of this guy completely. And at the end of the week, he had caught more fish than I had caught. Of course, yeah. of course because he, I, I was there coaching and guiding. I already got my line in the water. Right. So after his trip was over, he walks into my booth at a sports show. And he says, hey, Ronnie Waller. He said, I just saw that story you wrote in Fly Fisherman Magazine for the Babine River. He says, why in the hell did you write that story? He said, I fished you for, with you for a week. He said, I caught more fish than you did. What gives you the right then to pretend to be an expert and write a story like that? I couldn't believe it. And I, his friends are staring at him. He had about five or six friends with him. And at that moment, I realized that there was never going to be complete immunity from that kind of stuff. It's just part of my, my job. And, you know, sometimes you get up to play and people cheer and sometimes they boo, you know. Yeah. So that's, so I got philosophical about it. I knew why I, why I was there. Well, one of the things that's really interesting to me is you're a great writer. And I enjoy sharing reading lists with you and, and chatting with you and sharing pieces of work with each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm just fascinated that you didn't publish your first book until 2004. Mm-hmm. And I just, I have to ask why. All right. I waited till 2004 because of a line in a Bob Dylan song. Uh, okay, tell me. And the line in the song was, I'll know, I'll, the name it, the, the uh, line in this, the, uh, the, uh, uh, record was a line that said, I'll know my song well before I start singing. Ah, good man, yeah. It was great, and I knew he was right, that you have to really know who you are and where you're at and what you want to do before you start talking. Mm -hmm. And it takes time to accumulate those experiences and those levels of awareness. But in 2004, I was sitting down writing 
what's called the camp letter for this lodge on the Babine River about, you know, how to go to this camp and what the river's like and what the fishing is like. And I'm writing this document that's used for to promote this lodge. And I look at it, and it wasn't a camp letter at all. It was a story. And I thought, okay, the time has come. I'm going to start. And it was an epiphany for me. So I finished the camp letter out, and all of a sudden I started thinking about these stories because I knew then that my time had come for me to start singing. And that was a, it was a certainty. I mean, I knew it without any doubt. So When you did the DVDs or when you did the videos with 3M, did mm-hmm. you feel at that point that you really knew what you were you know, singing? Yes, I did. Uh, there was some new material that I had to engage, way, and that means ways of fishing that I really, I knew about them intellectually, but I didn't fish that way. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, there were parts of the film that I did, not out of experience, but out of an understanding of it. Mm-hmm. For example, there, there was this concept of grease line fishing. I had never done any grease line fishing. I've always been down and dirty. But I knew the game. I knew it intellectually. So when it came time to do the grease line segment of one of those films, I knew how to do it because I'd seen, I'd read about it. Right. You know, by that time I was good enough with a rod and a reel that I could look at something, I could hear it, and I, I, I could interpret it and use it. So in that sense, I did some things that I knew about but that I hadn't actually done, but I knew how to do them right. Right. You know, because I'd read the old readings from the, the, you know, the writers, A.H. Wood and these guys and yeah. the salmon stuff. So I knew all that intellectually. Yeah. You know, and, uh, that, that, that was okay. I mean, I could live with that. Did you ever go from down and dirty into the Arthur Wood stuff and into the, the traditional grease line tactics? Yes, I did. You know, we, we put those segments in the film and they were a lot of fun and so, um, I started trying trying those techniques as a part of my inventory of tricks, you know. And uh, I learned both grease lining uh, very, very well, and I learned the dry fly very well. And I, I became really proficient with the dry fly. I fished the dry fly for steelhead really hard for six or seven years. Right. And I got to where I would mastered it. I knew I had mastered it. And knowing that, I lost interest in it. Ah, oh, so what do you go to after the dry fly? I went back to the to the wet fly and deep line fishing because of the technical complexities of it. Oh, please do tell because this is this is very interesting to me. Okay, well, with the dry fly, you know, you've only got, you know, you usually fish it on a shorter line because you know you're not trying to throw the dry fly out in the middle of the river, so you fish it on a little bit shorter line, which allows you to see the fly better. And it taught me things about fly speed and, and the swing of a dry fly. And uh, I learned that it was a great way to locate fish, and I got really good at it, you see. The wet fly, on the other hand, is normally done with a lot longer line. You have no dry fly to see. And when your dry fly is going too fast or it's doing all kinds of bad things, you can see that. And you can fix it instantly. That's easy to do because it's all, you can see everything. Mm-hmm. But when you're fishing a fly down deep on a deeply sunken line and it's coming across, you can't see anything. 
other than the shape of your line in the water, and you can feel the tension on the tip of your rod with the with the with the deeply sunken line, and those are hints and suggestions, but you can never quite be sure. See, so the mystery of that then remains more difficult to decipher than the mystery of a dry fly. That's instantly solvable because you can see everything. I've got a friend who's been doing this for a long time. He's he's not he hasn't been around as long as you have, but he had the same cycle. You know, he started off with with actually dry fly fishing, mm-hmm. and he ended up cycling all the way down into preferring the deep sunk fly tactics mm-hmm. as well for very similar reasons. He mm-hmm. likes the complexities of trying to figure out. What's happening? Yeah, what's this. happening down there? Is the fly moving too fast? Is it, you know, doing bad things? Is it deep enough? Is it, you know, shallow enough when it has to be shallow? So it requires a lot more skill. Your your line handling capabilities become not only visual but tactile. I mean, you have to you you learn to feel subtle differences in the the current pu- pushing on your line, mm-hmm. and you can use that tactile sensation to evaluate just how what your fly is doing, if it's going too fast or it's going too slow. You see, so I I find that really more intriguing. Yeah, I can see that. You know, yeah, it's it's because it's, technically it's more difficult. Well, let's talk about the double hand. Okay. So one of the things that's always really interested me is this, uh, when I reached out to a lot of the, the guys and Joan, basically people of the old guard. Mm-hmm. I found that there was a, a bit of, um, a lot of people didn't really want to start double hand casting. They wanted to stay with the single hand. And a lot of people were really uh, opposed to fishing a double hand rod, mm-hmm. which is interesting to me because a lot of the context was, oh, you know, they're, the, the newer generation is all about the fast double hand graphite rods and mm-hmm. the shooting heads. But, if you study back in history, I mean, when the Scots came over to North America, they brought over the double hand rods, and then it wasn't really until Lee Wolf started, as you know, because you've read a lot of his books, until Lee started really trying to promote shorter rod fishing that people, mm-hmm. especially on the East Coast, started to go back to fishing single hand, or right. start fishing single hand mm-hmm. rods. Mm-hmm. What What is going on with that? What is the fuss about the double hand rod, and, and why would somebody in, say, your generation, be not quite as open to it as, as someone in mine. Okay. I think the biggest reason, I'm speaking for myself now, but I suspect this could be true of others. I grew up with uh, an opinion and uh, ideas, values, that fly fishing was fun because the tackle was so light. Yeah, yeah. It was light to handle, and it, it it really resonated with the fish. I mean, when you hook a fish on a big fish on a small light rod, every impulse of the fish runs up that short rod. But with a big, long, heavy rod, first of all, you lose the fun of just a feather-light rod in your hand. And secondly, you, you lose a lot of the tactile sensations and feelings of it because the rods were so heavy and what happened was is that when the double handed rods hit America they were really bad rods they were 15 footers 
They were made out of fiberglass, maybe graphite, and shit, they weighed three pounds, it felt like. (laughs) And it wasn't, it just simply wasn't as much fun. So everybody said, Lonnie, you're an, you're an archaic, you're an old elephant, put up, put out your, put, put away your single-handed rod. This is here to stay. This is the future, Lonnie. Get with it. Get with it, Lonnie. So, so I got a 14-foot rod. Oh, shit, jeez. I, Hated the thing. Yeah. I was fishing now, not with the fly rod, as I had grown up to know it. I was fishing with something that felt like a tree limb. Right. <laughs> and it, it, yeah, a pool cue. And it just didn't have the lightness of, the, the lightness of being. It right. didn't have that sense of lightness to it. And yeah, they threw a long line. You could throw big flies and all that stuff, but a lot was lost. So I gave in. I said, okay, okay, I'll learn this. And I, by this time, I was getting, in some ways, I'm better be careful with this. I was getting a big head. You know, I I caught a lot of steel, had a lot of fish and tarpon and all this, all these fish all over the world. So I thought, well, okay, I'll I'll compromise, you know, and I'll get one of these rods. Oh, I hate it. But I stayed with it, and I found it to be much more difficult than single-handed casting. I still think it is. I was pretty good with a single-handed rod. I could throw almost the whole fly line and up to here in the water, you know. So when I picked up these big rods, I couldn't do any of that stuff. I'd, I'd give it my best effort, and the fly would land three feet in front of the tip of my rod. I just, but I, I stayed with it. I got great coaching from guides and experts who, who, who loved the long-hand rods and they knew how to two-handed rods. So I stayed with it, but I started shortening the length of my rod. No. So I went to a, from a 15 footer to a 13 footer, you know, then I went to a 12 and a half footer. And the smaller the rod, the two handed rod became, the more I liked it. Because I was regaining what I thought was an important element of, of fly fishing was this lightness in the hand, this delicate, this really sensitive kind of fishing, not this sort of clubby yeah. wooden kind of thing. So I kept I hung in there with it, and I ended up, oh, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever it was now, with a little little 11-foot rods. I even spay cast with little 10-foot rods, and I love it. You bet. See? I get it. You know, you saw the bamboo I've been fishing, mm-hmm. and the difference when I'm landing a fish on that versus the big club. Oh, club yeah, up, right. I just, I feel so much more sporting and connected to the fish mm-hmm. on a rod that I can feel every act. You know, That's every right. Fish. It transmits more of the, the, of the, the signals or the inform, whatever you want to call it, information or the, the process. It's, it's more enjoyable to me. So I don't use anything over 11 foot now. That's fair. Yeah, it works. And I can single hand that when I have to, you know. And uh, I can also, I'm not, I'm not the waiter I used to be. And so sometimes when I'm in really dicey water with big rock boulders, I can plant my wading staff in my left hand and take that little 11 foot switch rod and make all the, the single spay, the double spay, the snappy all with one hand. Right. So I'm not falling in the water as I deliver the fly. That's a real hand, that's a, an advantage. <laughs> not to fall in as the fly line is sailing out over the water. So they let me, they let me fish that way. And now I could fish in really nasty places. And do it effectively because I'm not stumbling around. I'm solidly anchored. And I can throw 
single-handedly 50, 60 feet, and that's long enough on the rivers that I fish to catch a lot of steelhead, you know. Yeah. So I just got, I went, I just got lighter, but I stayed with it. One of the things that you said that really interests me is your business plan. Mm-hmm. When you went into this industry, did you have a business plan? In a way, I did. I didn't have a focused, specific, you know, business plan like phase one, phase two, or this. Uh, my plan was to get into the church or the arena, the theater of fly fishing. And then as time goes by, I would have options to choose or reject. So I used, the, I fine-tuned that process. And if something no longer felt good or worked, it would, I kicked it out of the business plan. For example, being in the retail business, owning a fly shop, at one point no longer was in the plan because I, I didn't know I was tired of it. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, okay, what's the next step? Fly fishing travel. So I went into that full time. So I had a plan that was based on experience. You try something, if it feels natural, if it feels good, you keep it in your plan. Right. If it doesn't, you let go of it. So that's the kind of plan I had. So just a natural progression. Yeah. Because it's, it's something that people ask me all the time. Yeah. Because I am a very organized person and, and I have always had a plan and, and it might be a little more, you know, OCD than yours. I did always have spreadsheets and, Mm-hmm. And forecasts and, and, and budgets and, and always trying to figure out where I was going to go and where exactly I wanted to be. And it was never to be rich or anything silly. I right. just wanted to be able to, to create a life that would allow me to fish as much as I wanted mm-hmm. to be happy. And, uh, people always ask me, well, how do you, do, what does your plan look like? And it's so hard to explain something that's been going on for, you know, it's been, this has mm-hmm. been in place since I was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And same as you, it's been a progression. And I'm just wondering if you have any words of advice or anything that you would say to somebody who is in the, you know, looking to break into the industry today and, uh, and struggling their way through. Cause everybody, it seems, is trying to be a fishing guide. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and my advice to them is be very careful. It's a, it's a scary industry to, to put all your eggs in one basket. Right. But uh, am I alone on that? I mean, how do you feel about it? I think what matters more than anything else is that if you love something, even if you don't fully explain, if, even if you don't, if you love something, like, say, fishing, you have to take it a step at a time, you know. I mean, you try something, if it doesn't work, you try something else. I, I think the... To me, the, the killing variable or the most critical variable is, is if you love it, you care about it. That's what you should do. And if you get into the fly fishing business and you start out as a guide, you know, and that only partially satisfies you and you want to change, you'll still love fishing. There's lots of ways to function and you have to hunt for them and you have to search inside yourself as to what, to what you're really looking for. But I, I always believe that the only, the, the, the biggest, the best business plan is always love what you're doing. If you don't love it and it doesn't fulfill you, get out of it or change it. You know, change it. You know, I, I got out of the retail business because I got tired of just sitting still and minding a shop and I got into the travel business. Then as my travel program developed, I 
I started finding pieces of that, some of which felt better than the other. So I always went to what felt the best, which I cared the most about, and which seemed to be who I was, mm-hmm. you know. Where are you now? Okay, oh, that's, that's a really good question. And it's still, I'm still developing that. Where I am now is that, you know, all, catching a lot of fish all of the time is wonderful. And engaging the mechanics of fishing and the, and the how to do it and the equipment and all that stuff still, still interests me. But I'm 74 years old now and there's another part of the dream that's starting to focus now. And the part of the dream is it's really philosophical, mm-hmm. extremely abstract and really philosophical. I still want to catch fish. I still love to. That's why I'm here this week, these two weeks in British Columbia. But what I'm interested in now are other kinds of psychological and even spiritual processes that I can feel out there. And I've turned my antenna in that direction. And you are just glowing with it because even through your words, even when I was on the Dean and you were at home and we were emailing, Mm -hmm. your words are glowing with energy, all of them. Every word, when I read back on your emails, I mean, there's obviously lots of humor there, but mm-hmm. there's just such a positive energy about you. And uh, and I do want to chat with you about that. Sure. And, and ask you a little bit more about this book that you're currently writing. Are you are you finding that a lot of these philosophies and a lot of a lot of these insights that you're having right now, are they finding their way their their way into your writing? Yes, they are. Um, I think it started this abstract, really philosophical thing, it's been building for a long time because fly fishing has always been a philosophy, there's a philosophy to it, you know, appreciation of nature, good manners on the water, you know, the connection with nature, you know, there's more to it than owning gear and, and catching lots of fish. So there's always this kind of philosophy has always been lurking in the background. For everybody, I think, you know. But for me, it really started to focus. uh, In this book I'm writing now, for example, emerged out of a series of conversations I had with John Randolph in the 80s when I was on their editorial staff. And John and I would talk about the psychology of fishing what was going on between people's ears inside, forget about if they're a good caster or they know how to tie flies or build rock, forget all that. What's going on in here? And why are some people consistently more successful than others? Mm-hmm. And we, out of those discussions, it became apparent that fishing isn't fishing at all. It's hunting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I started thinking about that. You know, well, what is this hunting thing all about? Where does that come from? You know, why is, does everybody have it? Uh, do men have it? Women don't have it? Do women, you know, what, what's, what's there? And we kept talking about it and I encountered some writings about evolution and all this kind of stuff about how we are connected not only physically to our past, but emotionally and psychologically 
Right. And the successful, the one thing that I, consistent thing I've seen about consistently successive anglers is that they have the instincts of a hunter. Okay, so I thought, well, I thought, I just kept that in the back of my mind. And then about a year and a half ago, I got a call from a publisher who published my last book. He said, why don't you get into this? Why don't you write about this hunter's mentality? What is what is a hunter's mentality? Is it, what are the components and the pieces of that? So we sat down and we started talking about what it means to be a hunter, you know, because that's what fishing really is. I, you're looking for them. You're searching for them. You're probing for them. I, I call that hunting. I couldn't agree with you more. It's that's what why, it is. That's why I started fishing. Right. I love knowing, like, like you, I guess, knowing that even my ancestors before me, this is what they were doing. They would, they would be walking the same paths, the same trails, trying to find the same fish. And, and sometimes you don't even need to, to hunt one or, or catch one, if you will, just knowing that they're there and stalking them and mm-hmm. spying for them and just, Knowing that you found them and you could have them if you wanted to is often enough for me to just hmm. call it quits and go home. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So anyway, I talked to, uh, his name is Jay Nichols. Yeah. Publisher. Who said to say hi, by the way. Hi, Jay. And we, we came up, we jammed over the phone, we came up with eight or nine pieces to the hunter's perspective. Right. So that's, what the book is about, those eight or nine components. Can you tell us them off by... Well, a lot of it has to be with suspending civilized responsibilities and pursuits and opening yourself up visually, and I think mentally, and I think spiritually, to what's going on in the natural world. That's one thing. You also have to get into the present moment. You can't be thinking about what happened at the office last week or what are you going to do to the stockholders when you get back on their desk or whatever. You can't be thinking about that. You know, what are your kids doing at night or whatever, you know. You have to get completely immersed in the present moment. The other thing you've got to do is you cannot see the great anglers do not see the natural world as an obstacle to overcome in order to succeed. They see it as a messenger. Oh, interesting. See, they look at the natural world. They see what's going on out there. They know the currents. They see the shape of the currents, the speed of the currents. They feel the wind. They look at the color of the water. They get completely immersed in in not just looking at it, but truly seeing it. Okay? And I've got a little gift for you at the end of this interview. Just on the subject, it's incredible. So that's another thing. They they don't look at something. They really see it. <clears throat> and they learn that by by re- truly seeing something instead of just looking at it, you learn from it. You know, you really see what's going on. So they got that going for them. I think the great anglers are also competitive. They have that in them. And I've, that's an instinct. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah, you don't bring the bacon home, you don't eat. Yeah. So that's, but now it's still there. But there's, there's a, most of the really great anglers I've seen were not just walking down the river having a good time. Boy, they, my favorite way of saying it is they're going for the throat, even though they're not going to cut it. Got it. You know what I mean? I mean, they want it, and they want it bad, and they're going to do everything they can to prevail. But they're, they're using their environment to, 
to show them what to do and how to do it. They're looking at things, and they're very, very competitive in that sense. It ends up being competitive in a strange kind of way. I, in, in a primitive way, I think competition was absolutely necessary. You had to do it in order to survive. You know, if you didn't get enough for your family or your tribe, you didn't make it. That That's okay. But I think com, com, unbridled competition now has to be controlled or else it just wrecks a fishing trip. It's okay to go for the throat, but when you cut one, don't come home and brag about it and pontificate and go on and on and on. Just quietly, you know, go your way. It's okay to be competitive and want to catch the most or be the best, however you want to define it. But I think there's some good manners required there. If you, if you, if you prevail, don't crow about it. Just keep it to yourself. You know what right. you've done. Smile and go home. Yeah, yeah, smile and go home. You know what you've done, you see. Do you think that a lot of people love to fish or, or they find themselves fishing because they're able to shut off and and truly get out of their heads and just dive into that instinct. Oh sure it does. And it's high, sure. isn't it? It's really a high when you're when you're in that that state that human beings are supposed to be in. Right. Because right. nothing we, else matters. That's right. We came out of the natural world, we're in the natural world and that and there we will return. Mm-hmm. Um, the the natural world is valuable for us spiritually and psychologically okay now i know for a fact that it's really nourishing most of us not all of us but a lot of us need the contact with the natural world i mean maybe it's just playing golf on a beautiful golf course with lots of trees and birds flying around or maybe it's elk hunting maybe it's fly fishing for tarpon whatever it is okay nourishment nourishment you know what nourishment means it means an adding to yourself a well-being okay and it feeds you. All right, the next step from that, and in my opinion, is from nourishment we go to healing. Okay? Yeah. And it has, not only does it nourish us, our contact with the natural world nourishes, it can heal us. Case in point, um, I was in a bad plane crash in 1992, and I almost died. Everyone else in the plane did die. Right. Okay? So I had to deal with that. And what I found is is going back to the river not only nourishes me, but it helps heal me from the trauma of that. You know, even though the accident happened in the natural world, it wasn't the natural world's fault. It was human error. So I go back there not only to re, 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 you know, rejuvenate myself, but to nourish myself and to heal myself from whatever it might be. Another Example is I've got two friends, one who's an ex-Navy SEAL commander and the other is a surgeon who have a, a clinic for only for special operations. These are the guys that got Osama bin Laden, right? Mm-hmm. And these young people are still on active duty, but they've seen some really terrible things. Right. And they've got extreme, severe post-traumatic stress, okay? Right. So these guys have started a program where they take these vets fishing. And the, the, the recovery rate from the symptoms of the, of post-traumatic stress, the recovery of that in this program is amazing. These guys and girls, women both, they stop having bad dreams. They can get back with their families again. So there's no doubt in my mind that the natural world also, besides being a lot of fun and, and, 
and nourishing and engaging, it has a healing power, mm-hmm. you know. And I think if we separate ourselves too far from the natural world, I wonder what's going to take that place. Can we really heal ourselves with more computers and more iPads and more distractions like this? I don't know. Maybe we can. I can, you know. And the the jury is still out if there will ever be a substitute for the nourishment and the healing that we've we've had with the natural world for 200,000 years. One of the things that really stood out to me was you know, you basically, can I talk about what happened in the, in the airplane crash? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, or can you, can you tell me what happened in, or yeah. tell people mm-hmm. listening what happened mm-hmm. in the plane crash? Yeah. Uh, the pilot, we were, it was a, a flight into a, a wilderness camp in British Columbia, here in British Columbia. And we were in a single wing, fixed wing plane, fixed wing Cessna. And the pilot made a bad landing. He landed from the wrong direction with a tailwind. Okay. And he touched down on this landing strip too late. So we didn't have enough runway to taxi to a stop. We were going to run off the edge of this high, little cliff, high, high, very high bank, 15 foot bank and crash into the rocks on the side of the river. So he tries to pull out of the landing. So we pull out of the landing and he's struggling to gain elevation. And now we're going to hit this mountain because there's a mountain in front of us. Well, we don't want to hit the mountain, so he banks into a turn, a sharp turn that was aerodynamically impossible for the plane to do, and we lose our lift. So we're sitting in the plane, and 30 seconds, a minute before, we were talking about what dry flies we're going to use, and all of a sudden, we're in a failed, we're in a falling airplane. So we go from dry fly fishing to how are we going to get, what's going to happen now? And the last, the last words I ever heard with anybody in the plane say, the pilot said, oh shit. So we just drop right straight down at 75 miles an hour and the plane is just crushed like an aluminum, piece of aluminum foil. So how, how did you get out of the air? What, what happened from there? The front plane crushed the two guys in front of me. The guy next to me on the way down, he'd taken off a seat belt. And I thought, I'm not taking off my seatbelt, but I thought, Shit, this guy thinks that's the best way to protect himself. I'm not going to tell him to do anything. It's his life. I can't tell him how to defend himself. So I kept mine on. So when we hit, I just went, it was an impact beyond anything I remember, I've ever experienced. I remember the last thing I felt was like I was standing at home plate in a baseball field, and some guy comes around with a bat and hits me right in the face. That's what it felt like. So I wake up, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes later, and just my head sticking out of the water. And shit, there's blood everywhere. The water's red, you know. And I feel for the guy next to me. He's not there. I look in the the cockpit, the pilot, they're not there. So I figured everybody else got out of the plane. I'm the last one to regain consciousness. So I remember unhooking my seatbelt, and reaching for something to grab a hold of, and I felt the pilot, and he was as cold as this bottle of ice. I knew he was dead. But I still didn't know about the other two. But I figured, well, maybe they got out. So I just sort of dog paddled to shore, spitting out my teeth. You know, all my teeth were knocked out. It was a mess. My face was crushed. Both hands were, all my, I mean, I was, I was like, 
putty, you know, and I just collapsed on the shore and I just sat there watching this plane sinking down into the water. I stood in where my friends were and then I lapsed into this experience, you know, and they found me there about 15 minutes later. Yeah, I was in hypothermic shock. And when the doctor found me, he said I had 15 minutes to live. My heart had stopped. You know, my heart wasn't beating anymore. And I remember I heard this voice saying, oh, he's gone. We've lost him. We're losing him. His heart stopped beating. And I didn't know who the voice was. You know, it turned out it was a doctor. They got me back to the lodge and put me out on the dinner table, you know. So I had just had this experience, this like what's called a near-death experience, and I encountered this presence, and it was there. And it says, just tell your heart to stop beating. I'm giving you this power. Tell it to stop beating, and it will start beating. And I told my heart to start beating, and it started beating. So they, you know, they kept me there, and they got on the radio. And the other miracle about all this was that their only contact with the natural world was a satellite by radio. The radio had not worked. They'd been try- they had tried to get the radio to work for two weeks because they needed, they needed supplies. And it wasn't working. So they had a call in. So someone come out and fix the radio. But they weren't there yet. But yet when she called, the lodge owner's wife picked up the radio phone that hadn't worked for two weeks and called emergency. It worked. Now you figure that. What are the odds of that? So it was a million to one shot, you know, and they picked up the the distress, the emergency warning in town. They sent a helicopter out to get me. And I was so screwed up by that time, I didn't know what I, you know, I was a mess. So I was in the emergency room all night long and I didn't feel any pain. And uh, the nurse says, well, we got to take care of you, honey. She's got to lay on this gurney and they had me hooked up to an EKG. And I'd watch the EKG and my heart would stop beating and it'd just go flat. Flat line, they call it. And I'd tell my heart, you start beating again. I'm telling you to start beating. And it would start beating again. All night like that. My heart would stop and I'd start it again by ways I don't understand. So I remember telling the nurse, she's, she was squeezing me and, you know, she says, we got to find out where you hurt. We, she says, you look like you've been in a bad fire. You're all black. And she said, oh, my God. I said, there was no fire. And she said, oh, my God, they're what they call hematomes. My whole body was was the color of this table. That's not an exaggeration. Black and blue. So I said, well, she says, where does it hurt? I said, it doesn't hurt anywhere because I, I felt no pain. I was out of my body. I didn't have a body. It was just my consciousness. I said, I don't have any. Nothing hurts. She says, honey. Tomorrow, everything you've got's gonna hurt. So they put me on morphine, and when it, she was right, boy, about three hours later, I got back inside my body, and here comes this incredible pain, and I just pushed the morphine button there all night long. Every seven minutes. Every seven minutes, you know. So I made it, you know, and they, they said, well, we don't know if you're gonna make it or not, but as soon as you can get in an air ambulance, jet ambulance, we're flying you down to Vancouver because we don't have the facilities to treat you here. So they put me on a Learjet ambulance and sent me down to Vancouver. And the doctors came in and they said, we, will, we need three days 
you may not make it. You had the, you've had a severe concussion, lacerations, all your bones in your face are broken. You know, if you swallow wrong, your bone splinter could go into your brain. It was like out of a science fiction movie. And, but the only nice thing was there was a lot of fly fishermen doctors on the staff at Vancouver General, <laughs> yeah. and they were arguing over who got to treat me. <laughs> and when the nurse told me that, that was better than a morphine button push. It was great. They were good to me. And somehow I made it. You know, it took me two years for rehab. I was in rehab for two years. Yeah, I'm so. I'm amazed at how, how great you look for Well, they rebuilt my face. You know, I got titanium cheekbones. These are all fake. I got plates and screws in my forehead. And I got an artificial lens in my right eye. And, and the doctors, when they came in to say they were going to give me a, an artificial lens in my right eye, I said, set it for bonefish focus. <laughs> <laughs> 50 feet. I want to be, I want 40, 40, or 20, 20, I guess. I want 20, 20 at 60 feet. And they said, okay. I love it. So, you know, we made it. And the only tragedy of it was that my friends were all killed. And it, it took me years. I'm still not over it. You know, How I, can you be? You never, it never goes away. You, what happens is, is that you never forget it. You can't escape it. But it, you become somehow, in ways I don't understand, bigger than it is. So you can manage it and handle it. For two years, it was, a big, it was bigger than I was. Nightmares every night. You know, and all that kind of stuff. So that was in 1992, a long time ago. We're all in this together. You know, we've all got X amount of time. And if you're 35, that's great. If you're 74, that's great. Just keep on keeping on. And fishing, God damn it, is still a part of all of it. And I'm never quitting. I love it. You're an inspiration. Yeah. Your, um, your, your outlook and your positivity shows through in all your writing that I've been reading lately, even if it's not published, it's the stuff you've been sending. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that you realize just how much you've inspired me to just keep pushing on and following my heart. So. Well, I've read some of your writings, too. I read your blog and your website, and I instantly recognize a, a, a great intellect and a great sensitivity, you know, and uh, so that's why I shared some of that information with you, you know, because I trusted you because of what you had read written you know i'm i'm no fool you know (laughs) and i know you know i know i know so i i've I've enjoyed your writing as well and the things that you've accomplished and done with your life you're a woman in a man's world which has been a man's world but you're a woman involved with it that isn't easy so you know i think your story is inspiring too you know is there anything else that you uh that you want to talk about Mm, no, not necessarily. I mean, I could talk. You know, I like to talk, as you know. Well, I love now. it. I don't think you ramble at all. No, I think you've got some amazing stories. You know, so I think I'm I'm concerned now for the future and uh, your generation. We talked about that while we were jamming out there before this interview. I'm concerned about the world and that you've inherited. You know, my generation did a lot of good things. And I'm being inclusive when I say my generation. I mean all of us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But, you know, we've left you guys a world that's it's in jeopardy. I mean, our natural resources, we've got to change the way we do business. You know, the biggest challenge that we face now, that your generation faces now, is that we're not going to be able to stop being 
excuse me, being who we are, but we have to change the way we act it out. We have to make it sustainable. That's the, that's the challenge your generation faces because the world, it's, we're really, there's some bad stuff going on environmentally. So I hope that we can find a way to, to do, be who we are and earn a living and live our lives and have our families and, and have our societies and our culture and our, all of our stuff in a way that's sustainable. And sustainable is a big word. It means not only environmentally sustainable, but spiritually and politically sustainable. You know, culturally sustainable. You know, nationally sustainable. Because if we don't, I, I'm not so sure that we will make it, you know. I don't know. Do you yeah. think that there's a bit of a dividing line between, say, your generation and my generation and, and the age gap? Do you think that maybe we need to communicate better? Oh, that's really a good question. Um, here, I don't know. I think we should. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one the baton is passed down from one generation to the other. So I don't think that should be just some abstract process where we do our thing and then we walk away. Okay, kids, clean up the mess. You know, that's no good. So I think we need greater communication. But the reality, at least of my life, is as I've grown older, there's fewer young people around. You know, and I don't have the contact with them. You know, as you grow older, you, you're, you know, your peer group, you know, you, you're, it's, it's like I still feel connected to young people in some ways, because I know they're good, decent people, but I don't share the same activities. I don't go to beer parties anymore, you know, and I don't, <laughs> I don't do Facebook, and I'm not, I don't do the things that you do, right. but I still care about you, and I still care about the world that you live in, and I care about what you do, and I care that you're safe and that you're happy. I care about that. And it shows when you came here, when you came to, to my place tonight, and you were surrounded by the crew and Catherine and myself, and there's five of us all young-eyed staring at you, waiting to hear <laughs> what you have to say. You just you sat there so comfortably, and your face was lit up, and you just it's so obvious when you speak to us that, that you really... There's there's a connection there. We can feel that you care. About, oh yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I do. And it's I think in some ways this generation is one of the brightest we've ever had, you know, and are, are doing miraculous things, you know. Um, so I'm confident in you. I mean, I really, you know, I think that you have what it takes to get us out of the mess that my generation, the one before me, helped create. You know, I I. You know, I think you can do it. It won't be easy, but I, I, I care, and I, and I, tr- I believe in, I believe in you, kids, quote unquote. Yeah. <laughs> I do. That concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.